Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks for being here this morning. I was contemplating with uh, Wendy all week how to get from the back, the base section up to the front to preach, back to the base section, et cetera, et cetera. It reminded me of my old radio days when we had to do like 10-minute ten, ten sportscasts on the, on the tens. So you'd be back in your office, you'd be writing something, you had to run up the hallway, you sit down, and the guy goes, go! And you had to say something coherent and go back and write a new thing and then come and do it. So I'm going to try to be coherent for you this morning. Um, I'm, I'm really excited, though, about these lanterns that are sitting in front of us. And if you, if this is your first time here, every one of these lanterns represents someone who's come to faith this year here through the ministry of Ridgewood Church. And so we're praying for many more. We're praying for 52 to come to know Christ this year. And I think we're up to about 25 now or something. So God is doing amazing work here because that's really all that matters in the end of the day. So we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about what it means to be reconciled to God. And when Paul talks about being reconciled, he uses some really, really I guess what you'd say, aggressive language. He uses terms before Christ like alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. And then he uses terms for after we have a relationship with Christ, like holy, blameless, stable, and steadfast. And I think what he's doing there is he's saying to the Colossians, which side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the alienated side or do you want to be on the side where you're wholly blameless, you're stable and steadfast? And Paul knew that the only way for them to get from alienated to have a right relationship with God was through the reconciler, Jesus Christ. And so he's teaching them in the section we're in right now, the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ is simply understanding and applying the fullness of Jesus and his mission. And Paul thought that essential if the Colossians were going to come into a deep relationship with him and have an effect on their world. So as we see Paul set this up, the doctrine of Christ through Colossians, here's where we've been so far. We've learned in chapter 1 that through him comes deliverance and redemption for sinners. We've learned that Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God. He's the creator and upholder of the entire universe, of all material creation. We, we talked about that last week. And today, Jesus is the one that reconciles us to God. This is the doctrine of Christ. The reason that Paul thinks this is important is their culture is much like our culture. Their culture was one of false teachers, one of people trying to move them away from the doctrine of Christ toward mythology, toward folk theology. And Paul needed to draw them back in to what was true so they could escape the darkness and move into the light so they could go from hopelessness to a life of purpose so they could go from a destiny of hell to a destiny of heaven. And the only way to do that is through our amazing Lord Jesus Christ. And so after we go through this text this morning, we're all going to have some decisions to make. So please open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the book of Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 18. If you want to take that Bible that's in the, the pew rack in front of you, it's page 983. You can also open your Ridgewood app. You'll find the text there as well, along with some study notes. And if you don't have the app, you can download it from the App Store. Just touch media and work your way through and you'll land on today's study notes. 
Colossians 1, 18 through 23. So it's A.D. 60 to 62. It's about 30 years after Jesus had died, risen again, and been ascended. There are false teachers circling around that were minimizing Jesus. They're saying that he is not the way to be reconciled to God. In fact, that he is subordinate to angels. And so Paul's going to set the record straight in this text. And he's going to tell us four things about Jesus that qualify him to be the only reconciler. He's going to talk about his reliability, that we can count on him. He's going to talk about his reach, that he can take anybody into the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about the ransom he paid. And we're going to talk about the resolute protection of the saints. These things qualify him to reconcile us to God. That's why we talk about the amazing Lord Jesus Christ. And so look at the text. Here we're going to see Paul lay these things out, 18 through 23. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast and shifting from the hope of the gospel that you and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is how to be reconciled. This is the person that can reconcile us. And the problem we have right now in America is many people don't know, number one, that they need to be rescued and they don't know how to be rescued. They don't know how to be reconciled. They don't even know that they need someone to help them. They believe that there is some kind of a magical caution that comes by just being a good person. And if, and if I'm not a bad person, if I do pretty well, if I pay my taxes, if I have a good job, if I help people, if I'm involved with the local charities, then I have a pretty good chance of being reconciled in heaven. Or they think that you can choose any religion you want. And whatever that religion is will get you to God somehow. And that's even gaining now traction in the mainstream church. And so Paul knew that just as we fight these things, these false teachers in Colossae were teaching the same kinds of nonsense. And people were being pulled away from the source of true reconciliation, which is Jesus Christ. He wanted them to know it is not a matter of having a great spiritual resume. It's not a matter of being a good churchgoer. It's a matter of whether you have a relationship with Jesus or not. So the first thing Paul tells us here, that Jesus is qualified to reconcile us to God because of his reliability. He is reliable. He is authoritative. He has the power to do this. If you look again at verses 18 and 19, and he is the head of the church, the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything 
he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is reliable. You know, we are not reliable. (laughs) Our worldly systems are not reliable. Our churches are not reliable. Because we all struggle with sin. But Jesus does not move. Jesus is forever. He's always the same. And we can rely on him. And the first thing that Paul goes right to here to undergird this truth is that he is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. We must understand this if we're going to have a proper view of who Christ is. Now, last week we talked about this reigning king of the universe and we looked at these immense words that show in Colossians 1, 16 and 17 that all things were created by him and for him. And then even more stunning in him, all things are held together. So not only is he creator, but Jesus holds the universe in his hands. And if he didn't, everything would fly apart. So Paul's making the case now is not only is he this immense eternal king, but he is the Lord over the church. He is the he is the groom. We are the bride. And by the church, we're talking about the universal church. We're talking about every believer that's ever lived, ever will live that make up the church. The church is not a building. It's not a place. The church is made up of God's people. Now, of course, the expression of the local church needs structure. People need a place to gather, etc. But the church is you and it's me. And our king, the leader of the church, is Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. And because he is the head of the church, because he purchased the church with his blood, at his death, he has the authority and is reliable to reconcile us to God. But Paul says not only is he just the head of the church, he's also firstborn from the dead. How do we know that we can trust Jesus? Because he's firstborn from the dead, Paul says. And this is such an amazing truth. In 18, he is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Wow, when it comes to qualifications, when it comes to the ability to move us from enmity with God to friendship with God, someone who is firstborn from the dead would be highly qualified. And what this means, if you look in the Greek, the, the, the word beginning is a first principle or an originating cause. So Jesus is the beginning. The church begins in him. Everything begins in Jesus. Jesus didn't come along after everything began. He didn't just supplement. He began everything. Any, any doctrine that plays around with the eternality of Christ is false teaching. Because Jesus always has been. Everything begins in Jesus Christ. Why do we love him? Why do we worship him? Why are we out there trying to get people to give their lives to him? It's because every good thing begins with Christ. The Father has given Jesus his kingdom and awarded him this incredible stature. The Holy Spirit's role is to lift up Jesus. And so we preach Christ. 
who was the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead means that Christ defeated death. He rose first. In Romans 1.4, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And I love what this commentator says. He said, he appears out of the dead, born anew from the dark womb of the grave, that he might become in all things preeminent. Fantastic wording. Born anew from the dark womb of the grave. If there was ever a culture that needed to be renewed from the dark womb of the grave, it's the culture we live in. Because we are a dark culture. We are a hopeless culture. What does this mean to you? It means that Jesus rose first. He defeated death. He will live forever. And so we can live forever too. By putting our lives in Him. And allowing Him to reconcile us to God. That's what makes Him incredibly qualified to reconcile us. What does this mean to you? It means that you don't have to You don't have to grieve in despair. You don't have to fear death. There's nothing wrong with grief. Grief is a natural thing that God has given us. A natural way of reacting that allows us to go through trauma. So grief is good. Crying is good. That numbness you feel when a tragedy strikes, that's good. That's God at work to protect us. But the thing we have that we need to remember is that when tragedy strikes or we face our own death or the death of loved ones is that we don't have to grieve in despair because there's hope. There's hope in Christ. Those who have come to Him in faith now will live forever. And there's great hope in that. And some of you are thinking, well... Thank you very much for that, but my loved one wasn't a believer. And what I would say to that is this, is because Jesus is firstborn of the dead and because Jesus is reliable, we can trust the justice of God. And for me, that's hope because I've lost people that I'm not sure of. But that idea of Jesus being this reliable, qualified source of reconciliation gives me great hope. I mean... Wendy and I miss our son every day. Desperately. And and we we go through these dark times of 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 grief and still we we, we deal with sadness that hits us at a moment's notice. We deal with frustration, we deal with anger. But overall I can say that we grieve with hope. We believe that Jesus is a reconciler, and when we come to faith in him, death is no longer the king. Death no longer has the final say. Death no longer is an enemy that cannot be overcome because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're ever wondering about a reason to live in gratitude, the fact that Jesus is firstborn from the dead should drive you to your knees in thankfulness. Because he could have chosen to allow death to have its final victory. And that's why it's also so important for us to... to, call people to faith in him because we don't want them to live not only in despair, but we want them to overcome death and live an eternal life. 
And here's the, the third reason that Paul says that Jesus is reliable, is that he is the fullness of God. It all dwells in him. If you look at verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is one of the most powerful descriptions of the deity of Christ in the entire New Testament. He is fully God. And I love this language because this fullness language hearkens us back to the Old Testament, the temple, when God would fill the temple with his glory. And now we know, because we have the advantage of looking back and we have the text in front of us, that the person who filled the temple with glory is Jesus. Because he said it, he said it in John 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He is the I am. The one who would lead Israel out of captivity. The one who would empower his saints. The one who would lead them back to the promised land. The Trinity is three persons, one God. Jesus Christ is fully God. And so if if we think we can go somewhere else to be reconciled to God, if we think that we can just gut it out and do it on our own, do you see how far that falls away from truth when we see who Jesus really is? Jesus is calling you to be reconciled. And not only that, He's calling you to carry your burdens and your pain. He's calling you to carry the things that are getting you stuck. Because he loves you so deeply, head of the church, fully God, firstborn from the dead. And now Paul moves to his second reason that Jesus is qualified to reconcile us to God is that he is a person of immeasurable reach. He can go anywhere and reach anyone at any time. There is no one that's outside of his grasp. Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's reminding the Colossians about their life before they met Jesus. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The description of life before Christ. And here's where we get hung up in our culture. Is when you run into people at work or at school or wherever you're going to impact the world, non-believers, is many times they'll look at this and say, what are you talking about? I I don't hurt anyone. I I live a a good life. But the Bible is very clear on this, that all of our deeds, if they're not done with eternity at stake, do not lead us toward reconciliation with God. In fact, we are drawing more wrath of God. So we have to understand that before Christ, we are alienated and we are hostile to God, whether we know it or not. This is like a doctor, doctor, the Apostle Paul, giving them a diagnosis. And I'm sure they were really happy about this. You can imagine them standing there and the text is being read and they're going, wow, hostile, alienated. It probably was incredibly impactful to them because the thing that's so amazing about this wording is alienated means to be estranged, to be cut off, to be separated from. And 
This is a strictly passive note in the Greek, which means it's not a subjective feeling. It's an objective truth. It's an objective determination by God. If we are not in relationship with Christ, then we have been positioned as being alienated from him. Because the wrath of God is on sin. So those who are trapped in sin are incurring the wrath of God by the decision of God because His holiness needs to be protected. I love Paul's words as he writes to the church in Ephesus, which is written about the same time. Remember that you, at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's hope. If you were, if you were on an, a, an abandoned island somewhere, preferably in January, tropical, if you were abandoned there and you had this verse, you would know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul isn't fooling around because Paul understands that what's at stake here is eternal life or eternal damnation. And though we are far from God, this is where the reach comes in. Jesus reached out and pulled us in because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his power, because of his sacrifice. There is no age. There's no station of life. There's no amount of sins that have been committed that will keep us from being reconciled when we come to Jesus in faith. And so if you're here this morning and you're, and you're full of shame and you're thinking, I am just not good enough. This text says different. We were doing evil deeds. This is where Paul goes next. This idea of evil deeds is really important here because it goes beyond just a mindset. It's about actively doing evil. And so in order for Jesus to reconcile us, he had to reach into our evil deeds to pull us out. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All the people that were around Jesus at the time of his death were all people that he loved, all people that he created. And what did he say? He said, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. And then, and then there's this thief on the cross or whatever he, whatever he did, and Jesus gave him immediate salvation because of his belief. This is the kind of reach and power that Jesus has. This is what makes him so amazing. Can you imagine people doing that to you unjustly and yet have the capacity to just say, please forgive them. I love them. So his reach, his reliability. And then Paul here talks about his ransom. He's qualified to reconcile us because of the ransom that he paid on the cross. And, and again now we're getting to the, to the incredible power of the gospel. Jesus is the only person that can reconcile us because he's the only one that has died in our place and paid for our lives with his. Look at verses 20 and 22. In 20, and through him to reconcile himself 
all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So mankind is in slavery to sin. We are born in slavery to sin. Because of the curse, everything is affected by sin. Everything. I have this bird feeder outside of my office. And a really kind couple bought bird feeders, and there's one out there, and I see these beautiful birds land there, and I don't know what they are, but they look nice. I'm actually going to have to buy a book someday. Don't buy me a book, okay? I don't want to. Um, but the beauty is incredible, and then I think, wow, that's, that's even in the curse. Think what, how beautiful after Jesus returns and restores creation. The beauty will be, I think, earth-shattering. And so here's, the, here's what Paul's getting to here, is that all things can be reconciled to God through him. And he says this really clearly in verse 20. All things, whether in, on earth or in heaven. That means that Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. That means that everything is under the curse. We as human beings will be reconciled to relationship because we are made in the image of God. But every entity will answer to Christ. Every entity, every angel, every fallen angel, every entity will answer to Christ. And those that have been made in His image that come to Him in faith will be redeemed because Christ paid a ransom to God for our sin and we have been released of the slavery of sin. In Colossians 2.15, we're going to look at this verse in, in, in a couple of weeks. Paul says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, fallen angels, having triumphed over them. In Romans 16.20, because of Christ's victory, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And we all know in the end, Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is the power of Christ. This is our amazing Lord Jesus. We're not here just going through the motions. We're not here just to have a good time. We're here to learn about Jesus. We're here to fall in love with Jesus. And we're here to empower ourselves to make Jesus known. Because there's no other hope for the world. And we all complain about how bad things are. The culture's crazy. Oh, look at this. Oh, that. The young people. The millennials. Oh, stay Jesus. That's why we need to get active. Stop complaining and get to work. And so Paul says that we can also have peace. And this is what our world so desperately needs. Peace comes through the blood that was shed. In 20, making peace by the blood of the cross. In 22, he is now reconciled by his body of flesh in his death. And this is why we talk about blood in church all the time and people freak, get freaked out. They go, what are you talking about blood all the time for? The blood itself is not the power. The, the symbolism is where the power is because blood is life. The blood pumping through our veins is life. And so if you read the Old Testament law, blood is forbidden. It's it's. You can eat whatever you want and this and this, but don't touch the blood because blood is life. And so God set up the sacrificial system where animals would spill blood in order to 
be forgiven of sin. Jesus then becomes this ultimate sacrifice. And there's power in his blood because at that moment when he said it is finished, then immediately everything shifted and changed. And when we come to Christ, we can live forever. He has that kind of power to reconcile us. And then that brings peace, peace with God. And so he's reliable. He has incredible reach. He has paid a ransom. And then, fourthly, Jesus is qualified because of his resolute protection of the saints. And this should give you a lot of hope this morning. Do you remember what Jesus said right after he gave the Great Commission? And lo, I'll be with you. I'll be with you till the end of the age. So we're not doing this Christian life alone. Jesus is walk, walking lockstep with us. I sometimes have this feeling when I'm praying or when I'm wondering about my own sin and confessing sin that Jesus is kind of standing over the corner going like, oh, man, come on, more. Yeah, it's not enough, you know, like, whew. we talked about that one yesterday, you know, that kind of thing. No, Jesus is walking alongside of me. He's in my garbage. He's in my garbage heap. And he still loves me in the garbage heap. And he always has, and he always will. In verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now this is a difficult passage, because this wording here, if indeed you continue in the faith, seems to contradict salvation by faith alone. But if you look more closely at the Greek, Paul fully expects the Colossians, to continue in their faith because of the power of Christ and His protection over them. Because they are basing everything on Christ. It's like the story in Matthew 7 that Jesus told about the person who built their house on shifting sand and they would be washed away. And then those that built their house on a rock could survive the greatest storm. Jesus is a rock. And so you can see why Paul was so enamored with Christ, eminently qualified to reconcile us to God because of his reliability, his reach, the ransom he paid, and because he is resolute in protecting us. And so if you believe this to be the truth, then the question is, what are you going to do about this? Are you just going to walk out of here and just say, that was a nice talk? I've had people come to me, that's a very nice talk you gave today. You know, I've just basically said that everyone's going to hell, there's no Christ. That's a nice talk. They're like, like I've got to get, like, Arr. Anyway, here are some options. Are you willing to submit everything? Everything? Are you willing to submit your, your job, your family? where you live to the Lordship of Christ because you trust Him enough that He'll take you where you need to go even if it may not be what you always dreamed of? Are you willing to accept the fact that this is truth and you are alienated and hostile and that you need to be reconciled? These lanterns are people that heard the Gospel and they responded in faith and said, yes, I know, I, I get it now. I, be, I need to have Jesus in order to be saved. But first, you have to admit that you need salvation. It's not a good place to be to be alienated from God. It's not good. Because the end game is eternal separation from God. 
Are you willing to admit that? And then if you are a believer in Jesus, are you willing to commit to making Jesus known? Are you willing to get on the team? Are you willing to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because if this is true, and it is because it's the living word of God, then there's only one reaction that we can really have, and that's to fall in love with Jesus and say, you know what, man? Like, there is nothing else in this life that's worth living for. For Paul, he was laser-focused. And you might say, well, he didn't live in Minnesota. He didn't have lakes and boats and stuff. I know. He was laser-focused. Nothing wrong with any of that. Nothing wrong with recreation. Nothing wrong with free time. Nothing wrong with family stuff. I'm just telling you right now that the only overriding thing that matters is Jesus. Someday when, we're, when people walk up to our gravestone, if they can even find it in 100 years, because the tumbleweeds will be going by, it'll be buried under so much stuff, and maybe they'll wipe it away and it'll say, this person loved Jesus, and they'll go, oh good, that's that, person, that person's life was worthwhile. That's what I hope my tombstone says. He loved Jesus. He lived for Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus. And you know, as we're going we're gonna to sing in a minute about the blood of Christ, and as you sing, I want you to pour your heart out to Jesus and thank him. Because it's his blood that makes this all possible. It's his sacrifice. God, thank you for the sacrifice that you made through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we bow our heads and pray, we think about this incredible sacrifice. We wonder how we can ever live up to this sacrifice, God. So just help us to make the right decisions. Help us to come to you in faith. And God, as we sing now, help us to sing from the bottom of our hearts, from the fullness of our love for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.